Good morning. Let's get straight to markets. Take a look at the impact for the indices. Factual. Succinct. All you need to know before your trading day starts. Subscribe to our newsletter, CNBC's Daily Open. Beyond the Valley. Hello and welcome to a new season of Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the world of tech. I'm Tom Chitty. And I'm Arjun Karpal. If you're a regular listener, I'm sure there is great relief to hear Arjun's voice and to know that he is still very much part of Beyond the Valley. But we have made a few changes. Arjun has been relieved of his hosting duties. How do you feel about that, Arj? Yeah, feels good. Feels feels free. Yeah, I mean, you've got bigger and more important things to be doing than this. Got lots to talk about, Tom. Uh, so that he can give us even more analysis and insight on the biggest tech trends and developments. So um, that is why we've done that. And we're also going to be giving you a new podcast every week. I know Christmas has come early. It means there will be more discussion on the latest tech news from across the globe. And every episode, we'll be taking a deep dive into a story you want to know more about. So welcome to the revamped Beyond the Valley. And to kick us off, the story this week is about a company that is on everyone's lips. Beyond the Valley. Arm has surged as much as 25% in that debut on Thursday. The architecture it has is it's high performance, but I think it's the it's the low energy, it's the power efficiency that really works. There's, there's quite a lot of uncertainty here. There are, there are various issues with um, the Chinese portion of the business, which effectively is being written down to zero, but it's still there. Beyond the Valley. Last week, Arm Holdings, a British semiconductor and software design company, floated on the Nasdaq Stock Exchange, valuing the company at more than $50 billion. Arjun, why is this company getting so much attention? So, Tom, Arm is an incredibly important company in the world of semiconductors, but also in the world of technologies that you and I use, our smartphones, every single day. So, just just a quick rundown of what exactly this company does. Arm effectively designs what are known as instruction set architectures or ISAs for for these microchips uh, known as processors or, or central processing units. People might have seen the sort of acronym CPU knocking about. That's what that, that stands for. Uh, these chips can be thought of as almost the, the brain uh, of an electronic device. And ARM's ISAs are effectively b- blueprints for these processes that other companies, the likes of Apple, uh, Qualcomm are among some of the big names that use these blueprints to base their own chips on. So effectively, ARM, you can see, is, is this foundational technology for a lot of the, the semiconductors that go into the devices that you, I, and our listeners use. ARM charges these companies licensing fees to use its technology to build their own chips. It also gets royalties when these chips are produced and go into end devices. So hopefully that gives a sense of, of how critical this company is. Well, when we're talking about sort of scale, you know, in terms of obviously the crucial you know, components and, and the, the sort of intellectual property that they have is, is crucial to a lot of uh, the uh, the tech that we use. But that, give us the, an idea of sort of how prevalent it is. Is it, is it in, in, you know, everything that we're using almost? It's, it's in a lot of things we use. So 99% of, of the world's smartphones are based on ARM technology. The processes in there are based on ARM technology. So 
that's a lot of smartphones. So that is, it's a ubiquitous technology in smartphones. You also see it in other consumer electronic devices like laptops. Not as prevalent, but certainly in the smartphone arena, that's where really ARM dominates. And, you know, we're probably all using some sort of ARM-based tech without actually knowing it. Yeah, I mean, I saw a stat the other day that said, I think now 85% of the world's population has a smartphone, which you do the numbers, it's... (laughs) I'm not going to. That's beyond my... That's a lot of lot of people. Yeah, that is a lot of people. Um, so talk to us a little bit about the, the IPO, uh, just briefly. I know I've sort of mentioned the valuation of it, but it's it's an important step in the evolution of the company you, you, you would have thought yeah it's got a it's got a fascinating history arm and i think this ipo is really a key moment in the company's history now arm well arm processors actually predate the company arm um there was a company called acorn computers uh it was co-founded by a pair called chris curry and herman hauser um and acorn basically landed the rights to to build a computer really known as the BBC Micro. This was a UK government initiative to get a computer in every classroom in the UK. Um, As part of that, Acorn Computers designed the first ARM processor, the ARM-1. Acorn then ran into sort of some financial difficulties in the mid-1980s, and the, the people who were behind that first ARM chip continued to work on it. Then the actual company called ARM was created in November 1990, and this was actually a joint venture um, between Acorn Computers, Apple Computers, which we now know as Apple, uh, and VLSI Technology, which we now know as NXP Semiconductors, another semiconductor player. And ARM, A-R-M, stands for Advanced Risk Machines Limited. Fun fact. Okay, I actually did not know that, so thank you for that. So that's where it all came from. Um, And it was a publicly traded company in the UK for many, many years until 2016, when this Japanese company called SoftBank came in and bought the company for $32 billion. Now, there may be a lot of people listening who who haven't heard of SoftBank. Certainly, SoftBank was relatively unknown here in the UK until that point when they bought Arm in 2016. Uh, They were a big Japanese conglomerate doing all kinds of things in telecoms and various other areas. Uh, But under their sort of uh, quite uh, prolific and and very outspoken leader, Masayoshi-san, the company pivoted really to to become very much a technology investment company. They got this huge investment fund, uh, billions of dollars called the Vision Fund, and they invest in startups around the world. As part of this shift to becoming a, a sort of tech investing company, Masayoshi-san purchased Arm uh, for $32 billion via SoftBank, uh, and it went private. And so Years have passed. 2023 comes around now. The company's listing it again. SoftBank's listing arm. Uh, It's listed in the US. Uh, Previously, it was listed in London. Uh, So that's seen as quite a big blow for London. But that's where we're at right now. So it's a huge moment, really, to bring arm back onto the public markets. But it's not actually the whole company, though, that they are listing because SoftBank will still retain a good portion of, of the company and then list 10% or something. Yeah, yeah, spot on. They're actually holding 90% of the company still. So when you value, I mean, that's that's not a lot. You know, they've still got a lot of control over the company. They're not like, you know, leasing it out to, you know, the, the investors. They do. And a lot of that, I guess, is down to this character, Masayoshi Sandwich. You know, I... I I would really urge our our listeners to to kind of read into it more. He's an interesting character and he's got this vision about ARM and he has done for for a while that this is going to be a key company in the future of 
all of these technologies that we use are consumer electronics, but also newer areas. Artificial intelligence is one of those. So he really believes in ARM. Uh, and he believes this company is going to be foundational to the, the technological transformations that are coming over the coming decades. And I think that's partly why they didn't give away or float the whole company. There's also obviously, you know, uh, SoftBank has been in the news, you know, in the last few years for s- some some bad investments, would you say? So, you know, that also has played into the sort of the focus and attention maybe with this IPO, because it's probably quite important for them Um Going forward, you know, WeWork being one of their investments that hasn't panned out, maybe they how they would have liked. Yeah, there are plenty of investments that have haven't gone so well for SoftBank. Let's put it that way. They've uh, often picked up this reputation of investing in companies that aren't profitable, that don't really have a path to profitability, and paying over the odds in terms of valuation for buying shares in these companies. And some of them, when they have come to market, uh, come to IPO, uh, their shares have just plunged because the public markets don't quite like the state of a company that hasn't got its you know, financial affairs in orders effectively. And so SoftBank has picked up somewhat of a reputation for that. And so this ARM IPO was actually quite symbolic. It was quite important for the company. Yes, for in terms of raising money, I think the IPO raised sort of nearly $5 billion, as you mentioned, valued the company at north of uh, $54 billion. Um, but actually, it from, from, from a reputational point of view, it was crucial that this came off and looked good. And it did. In the first few days of trade, you saw a, a spike in the shares. Um, that all looked good for SoftBank. They wanted to give shareholders a return on this, but they also wanted to show that the bet that Masayoshi Sun made in 2016 on this company uh, is paying dividends right now, and it will continue to. I don't want to uh, keep on with uh, IPOs for too much longer, but I think, you know, it's, I was sort of hearing and reading over the weekend that there's been a lot of discussion about how this could be a real boost for the tech sector when it comes to IPOs as well. There, There is a lot of talk about that. I'm not necessarily sure that's going to be the case. I think the markets right now are still very discerning on the kind of companies coming to market. They want to see profitability. They don't want to see lofty valuations. Uh, and they want companies they believe can have slightly longer term success. Uh, so I, while ARM is a very, very special case, just for the reasons I mentioned prior in terms of how foundational it is to a lot of the technology we use, how foundational it is to, to the semiconductor space, those are... Uh, are things that make ARM different to perhaps some of the other companies that are coming to market. I don't think this is necessarily opening the floodgates for a deluge of of tech IPOs. There'll be more, but I think the market will be very discerning about the numbers around those IPOs. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Okay, moving into sort of the the future for the company, forgetting the IPO for a second, what are sort of the challenges and issues that it could could face in the next few years? So Arm's done very well in terms of creating a dominant position for what it does, these, these blueprints effectively. Now, the, the problem is the smartphone market right now is maturing. It's slowing down. People are holding on to phones for longer. 
it's not that two-year upgrade cycle we used to see, uh, the market is really kind of facing a number of headwinds. Because ARM is so reliant on the smartphone market doing well, um, the company itself is facing some headwinds. In its fiscal year, last fiscal year, it saw a, a slight fall in revenue, particularly because some of those issues I mentioned. So the key now is, where does it find growth? Where's the growth coming from? How is this company going to grow? Uh, and what's the next big thing? Um, the company's pointed to a few areas itself. It says, we think we can be important in the data center. And we'll dig into some of these 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 bits. We think we can be important in the car market, in, in cars, in automotive, as those become more connected and more uh, sort of fuller chips, effectively. Um, and they think they can be prevalent also in the continuing developing world of artificial intelligence. Uh, those are sort of some of the promise areas for the company. The key is how well it transitions. Now, it's doing well so far in terms of, of, of the data center. Just to, to, to lay that out, data centers made of huge servers require semiconductors inside of them for processing. processing. Yeah, yeah. Processing data, processing, carrying out a lot of the functions. And as cloud computing continues to grow, as businesses continue to move some of their, their software, their processes to the cloud, the data center becomes really important. The other thing as well, recently I was at an auto show uh, in, in Munich, Germany, and you would think that it wasn't an auto show because of the number of tech companies there. You had all the chip makers there. You had companies like Samsung. Google and, Google, right, yeah. Amazon. And they're all trying to get into the, the, the auto market. They're all trying to get into the auto market. They see the car as effectively a smartphone on wheels. And so what's going to power that? Huge growth area, isn't it? I mean... Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so when you look at ARM um, and you look at, its strength in, in smartphones and then you say okay well if this car is going to be this next almost computer on wheels that's another area of growth and so you're seeing that as as an area where the company is seeing some growth the big question mark is artificial intelligence and where arm plays in that and i think that's an opportunity but it's also a challenge because we don't know where ai is going yet or it's very new relative to you know, rest of tech, um, and and probably they're also intrinsically linked, aren't they? That you know, AI's the success of AI is sort of based upon where semiconductors go from here, and you know who's in charge, where are those companies based, those kind of. Things. Yeah, I mean, those are all, those are exactly, those are all valid points. I think we're still in the early days of AI, and we sort of use AI as this kind of umbrella term for a lot of things. And I think it's important to just, you know, dig into what we're talking about here. Chat GPT, I'm sure a lot of our uh, viewers would have, uh, or listeners would have either listened to it, uh, or sorry, used it, or, 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 or uh, have come across it, or heard about it. Um, this, this product, this Chat GPT, this AI chatbot, um, is a type of AI known as generative AI, i.e. users can type in a prompt of some sort into, into this chatbot and um, because of the way it's trained on huge amounts of data and huge amounts of natural language, it's able to give you a response that you and I understand. Um, that is generative AI. That's where we're seeing a huge explosion right now. That is all driven by, like I said, these so-called large language models, huge amounts of data being trained up uh, and effectively, the end product is something like a chat GPT. To train all these models, you require a lot of data processing. A lot of that happens in the data center in the cloud. Currently, 
um, a company called NVIDIA, an American company called NVIDIA, uh, which makes a, a type of chip known as a graphics processing unit. They're the dominant player here. Those graphics processing units are being bought, installed into data centers and servers, and they're effectively the foundation for all of this training. Now, ARM currently wants to get in this market, but ARM's strength has typically been in the smartphone and in the CPUs I mentioned at the start of this episode, not in those GPUs that are being used currently. So the question mark for ARM is, how does it transition into this area and how is its architecture for chips relevant for the world of AI? Now, as I as I view it, ARM's relevance could come a little bit more down the line. Now, AI processes such as ChatGPT right now are being carried out in the cloud. So when you go onto ChatGPT on your phone, on your on your laptop, and you use it, effectively, you, you, the software is being run via the cloud, and you access it via that. But where a lot of device makers, in particular, see AI going, is when AI no longer has to be done on the cloud, but is actually done on your device, i.e., your smartphone, your laptop, or whatever else is happening. So. A lot of these smart digital assistants that we have on our phone, the processes smartphone makers want to bring to the actual device. What's that going to require? Quite powerful chips that don't consume a lot of power and drain your battery. And that's where ARM strength is. The problem is we're not there yet. That could be a sort of three to five, maybe a bit longer year play, but that's really where ARM strength is. So I think as people are looking at the ARM story where it plays in AI, that's where I see the, the longer term play going. I mean, when we talk about chips and semiconductors, invariably we talk about politics, geopolitics, and how they are um, linked. Uh, <laughs> geopolitics seems to be linked to everything uh, these days, sport as well, uh, but tech definitely. Um, where where do you see this um, sort of becoming a problem for, say, some of these companies? We know that Taiwan... The, has a big um, investment in chips and, you know, with AI becoming such a crucial part of, um, you know, life and our daily lives, infrastructure, every, you know, all of that. Um, where, where do you see that, the, the sort of stumbling blocks for some of these companies? The, the risk really, geopolitics is, is number one risk really for these uh, semiconductor firms. The reason is because semiconductors have just been dragged into the geopolitical tensions between in particular the China, China and the US. And, and part of that is because of how critical these technologies are. I mentioned they're in your smartphone and in various other consumer electronics, but they're also in things like potentially your fridge, uh, your TV, your car but also military applications. And that's where governments are becoming increasingly concerned about who controls the technology within semiconductors because they're so foundational for so many things, in particular when we start talking about AI and we start talking about military use cases. And that's part of the reason why the US has looked to, uh, in many cases, block China from accessing certain technologies or getting their hands on certain technologies Um the US is very strong in many parts of the semiconductor supply chain. And it's looked to get allies like Japan, like South Korea on board to, to kind of go ahead and, and try to almost keep China out. Corner that market. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that's why it's becomes and, and that becomes a risk for companies. Now, you take a company like Arm, right? 24 or 25%, about a quarter of its revenues come from China. But it comes from an entity known as Arm China that 
arm holdings doesn't actually have any control of. Now, you think about the geopolitical implications of that. You think about if there's any kind of retaliation from China. You think if there's any kind of further export restrictions from the US, that could impact a company like arm. You asked about the risks earlier. China is certainly top of mind in terms of risks for the arm story, but it's, it's certainly a risk for everything. If you're told that a large market is no longer accessible, that could have a huge impact in wiping out a lot of revenue. It's a story that will go on and on for um, many months to come and years. So do um, you know keep um, keep across it on cnbc.com. Um, I'm sure we will be talking about ARM again. Um, but for now, let's see what else is happening beyond the valley. Beyond the valley. So, Tom, I don't know if uh, you've seen a couple of stories knocking about the first one I want to tackle is regarding Apple, Huawei, China. Huawei, our listeners might know, big Chinese giant, um, very strong in telecommunications equipment, used to be the number one player in smartphones globally uh, in the second quarter of 2020. Now, very recently, Huawei started quietly selling a smartphone in China called the Mate 60 Pro. There was a lot of speculation that this could connect to 5G networks, these super fast mobile networks. Uh, there were reviews that came out noting they were getting 5G-like speeds. So why is this significant? Well, it's because from 2019, the US government began hitting Huawei with a number of sanctions, which effectively cut it off from software from Google and also very key components like the chips that they used in their phones. Um, now, there are a lot of sanctions specifically targeting chips. Huawei used to design its own chips that went into its smartphones. Uh, some of those were the most advanced around at the time. Um, those were made by a company called Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Co., or TSMC, uh, a Taiwanese firm which is the world's biggest chip maker. Um, but those sanctions by the U.S. meant Huawei could no longer purchase those chips from TSMC. Now, Huawei was, as I mentioned, once the number one player in the second quarter of 2020. And because of those sanctions, its smartphone business was almost wiped out. So this is significant that it's come back with a phone that has 5G because it was cut off from those 5G chips. So how has it done that? Um, and I think that's the big question. And it's raised eyebrows and concerns in Washington. Um, and it signals a few things, I think. One, that China's domestic chip chip and semiconductor sector is really advancing and figuring out ways to get around these sanctions. And secondly, I think some of these US sanctions perhaps haven't been as effective as lawmakers would have liked as well. And clearly, Huawei was the biggest challenger to Apple in China for a long time. And if it's coming back with new technology uh, and premium phones like the Mate 60 Pro that it that it has released, then that could uh, really signal a new challenge to Apple in China. But there's lots more to unpack here. Maybe maybe we'll tackle it on another yeah, episode. I mean, definitely. I mean, Huawei is, is a fascinating story. I remember going to Mobile World Congress one year and it had this huge, you know, almost mini village, you know, stand. And then a few years later, nothing. Um, and just that up and down roller coaster ride that they that that company has been on is is fascinating. So yeah, I'm sure we will cover more of that. And um, there's another story that you have spotted in Saudi Arabia, or it's actually a, right. a US one. And, and concerning another big character in the tech world, Elon Musk. Always in the news. Always in the news. So the Wall Street Journal reported that Saudi Arabia was in talks with Tesla about setting up a manufacturing facility there. Um, as part of a broader plan to diversify Saudi Arabia's economy away from just oil. 
Elon Musk actually responded to this story and he, he called it utterly false, uh, denying that this is actually happening. Um, one thing we do know, though, just to add a bit of context here, is that Elon Musk is searching for some new locations for Tesla factories in particular, um, really because he signaled that the company wants to reach a goal of selling 20 million vehicles annually by 2030. Of course, to do that, you need to ramp up production. Um, it's already got factories in the US, in Shanghai, in China, in Berlin, in Germany, um, and it's clearly looking for, for more sites. But interestingly, it's not so much Tesla searching, of course. It's actually countries trying to woo Elon Musk and Tesla to set up shop in their own uh, countries as well. You've seen that in France. Uh, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, has met Musk this year and, and tried to get him to set up a factory there. Turkey, uh, the Turkish president as well, uh, met with Musk uh, this month and invited him to build a factory in Turkey as well. So there's a lot of interest from governments because they want to boost their own electric vehicle sectors. They want to boost their own technology sectors as well. And clearly they say Elon Musk and Tesla as a way to do that. So let's see how this plays out. And they need uh, space as well. And those countries probably do have a lot of space uh, to put the factories. So that would help. Um, okay. And finally, before we finish, we do have a new feature on the pod called Stat of the Week, where Arjun throws out a number and I have to guess what he's referring to. So let's hear it. Three. So other than it being the magic number, I suppose... <laughs> uh, three... No, got no, no. nothing, no. Okay, so just because we focus a lot on semiconductors, the number relates to that. Three nanometers. Three nanometers. That is the process of the chip manufacturing process that was used in Apple's latest iPhone 50 Pro and Pro Max. It's the only three nanometer chip in a smartphone currently on the market. And it's one of the most advanced in the world. Now, when we talk about nanometers and chips, we're referring to the number of transistors that can fit on this chip. The more transistors, in theory, the more powerful, but also um, these chips are just getting smaller and smaller. So when we talk about the Huawei chip just now in its phone, uh, that's seven nanometers, just to give you some context. Okay. And we're going all the way down to three. Um, but also, just very interestingly, it shows you, I think, how much the, the chips inside the devices that we use are critical to how they perform and why we like them and what they do. Um, but clearly a big advancement from Apple on, on the chip front. And I suppose it also gives you more space to put in other stuff into the phone, bigger batteries maybe. Yeah, and more AI on the phone as well. So there's so much more that comes with it. Um, but you know what, Tom, we're going to talk a lot about chips and semiconductors, I think, on because they're so foundational. But it's a fun topic. Yeah, I mean, we should eat chips at the same time. So um, uh, that is it for this episode. Um, but if you want to keep up to date with the very latest on tech, then uh, cnbc.com is the place to go. Thank you, Arjun. Thank you, Tom. Uh, we are going to be back next week, so do follow and subscribe to make sure you don't miss the next episode of Beyond the Valley. Goodbye. Beyond the Family.